A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Welcome to yet another week in the gloriously exciting post-COVID world of going to the beach, heading out to the pub, and generally trying to get back to some kind of normality. More and more people are booking holidays, weekends away, and parties with friends. The South Coast was bustling with picnickers and visitors yesterday, and the roads were packed with tourists from all over Britain. But meanwhile, there are still teachers too frightened to go back to work, and people suffering from anxiety who can't bring themselves to leave the house after three months in lockdown. What's the solution? Keep listening to this show, and we'll bring you the pulse of the nation and the thoughts and fears of the people. Up first, it's Lance Foreman, former MEP, with his take on how it's all going, not just in the business world, but in the social world of Great Britain as well. 03444991000. Coming up later on, we'll be having our weekly chat with Peter Hitchens, columnist with the Mail on Sunday, who has plenty to say on the mask debate, should we or should we not be wearing them, regardless of what Michael Gove has said over the course of the weekend. We'll find out what's likely to happen to Ghislaine Maxwell when she appears in a Manhattan court tomorrow, and we'll bring you the latest on the illegal migrants arriving on our shores. Apparently something is finally going to be done by Pretty Patel. 0344-499-1000. Homeschooling today is all about the clouds above your head, how they are formed, how you can tell them apart, and what they can tell us about the weather. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there's been all sorts of things going on over the course of the last few days. I went out for dinner for the first time uh, since the lockdown on Thursday night. Uh, We didn't go out for dinner this weekend, but there was an awful lot more people out and about down on the beaches of the south coast. There were an awful lot more people driving around uh, into London last night when I came home. Uh, People are now booking holidays. People are taking weekends away. There are more parties going on. Um, People are still, however, I would have to say, not going back to work in quite the numbers that I think the government would like them to do. We had Michael Gove over the weekend saying to people, well, it's time to go back to work. Just get back to work. Well, it's all very well telling people that. But if they can't go back to work or they don't particularly want to go back to work, how can you make them? Let's talk to Lance Foreman, a former MEP for London, businessman, of course, as well. Uh, a man with his uh, very much his, his, his eye on the pulse of the nation. Lance, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning to you. Thanks very much. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, it's an interesting time, this, isn't it? Because as much as we've sort of, uh, we had the first weekend of of coming out of lockdown, going to the pub, going to the restaurants of of the country as well, um, it's now kind of settling down a little bit into what I call the two tribes now of Britain, who are the ones who want to go out and the ones who don't. 
that's right. Um, it, it really is quite interesting to see how people are reacting uh, to this. And um, it's quite interesting. I, I've obviously been at work um, right the way through from mid-March. Yeah. Know, where food is an essential industry. And so you know, my team, we furloughed just a few of them. In fact, we had to take on extra people at one stage, more than the number that we furloughed. But, you know, we've been at work every single day and life has been pretty normal. I mean, the, the, the roads have been quieter. But, you know, we're coming into work, we're producing our food and going home and uh, and so on. So life's pretty normal for us. But for people that have been stuck at home and haven't been out and realise that actually there is a normality out there, a lot of those are completely panicked about coming out. I mean, some aren't. Some are desperate to get out now. And uh, But there are a lot that are really panicked. And I actually, I, I noticed it, it was quite interesting. Um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife had a birthday party. And she invited to, uh, decided to invite lots of her girlfriends over to our home in, in small groups for an hour-long session, like five of them for an hour, then the next five for an hour. And it's just interesting to see how everybody's reacting differently. Some were sort of kissing each other, hello, shouldn't really have done that. Others, you know, you pass them a glass, they wouldn't want to pick the glass up without right. sanitising it. Right. So it's, just, it's interesting, people are reacting in very different ways according to, you know, you know how they feel, how nervous they are as individuals and so on. And I suppose that would be in keeping with the way the government wants things to sort of unfurl, if you like, because they seem to be reluctant uh, at every step of the way to issue instructions. And we were still kind of unclear, really, about all sorts of things like wearing your masks. I mean, we were just listening to uh, Julia Hartley Brewer there, where people in salons, in sort of beauty salons, are saying, oh, we're not allowed to do people's eyebrows. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why don't you just do their eyebrows and see what happens? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm certainly in the camp that believes this should be left um, up to the individual because it's not just about masks. You know, you can, you know, if you're standing, you know, very, you know, right up close to somebody with a mask on, does that really give you much more protection than standing two and a half metres away without a mask on? You know, th- these, are, these are very fine judgments and none of us really know. And I think that, that, you know, the fact is, you know, we, we'll be looking at the figures, at the, the figures of deaths day by day. And if those start reducing, I think people will generally feel more comfortable. The masks probably won't. You know, they're, they're uncomfortable. They're not, you know, it's not a comfortable thing to wear, particularly in summer. If you wear glasses like I do, they're a complete pain because your glasses steam up. And I know all these tricks to stop them steaming, but they make them even more uncomfortable so I, I think this is just one of these things where people will just decide in time and hopefully we're not going to see a second wave this november um it's interesting that you'll see that the, the countries that did particularly well early on uh with uh, covid seem to be doing worse now and the ones that did particularly badly early on are doing better now so london's doing okay now New York was absolutely tragic. I mean, the, the figures, the death figures, absolutely horrendous. But they're now the best, you know, across every city, you know, across the USA. So these things probably will balance out in time. Well, I think I seem to remember at the beginning of all of this, we were told effectively that uh, everybody will get COVID-19 at some point. Uh, it will just affect them all very differently. And it seems to me that every sort of country in, in, in a way has kind of got the same experience. It's just arrived there in a slightly different manner. Well, that, that, that's right. And if that is the case, which I suspect it is, um, then why did we lock down? Why didn't we go down the Swedish route? Because actually we are killing our economy. And that creates, you know, 
other health, you know, other health issues, I mean, the, the, the most obvious one is if you haven't got a strong economy, you can't actually fund the health service. No. Uh, so, you know, we have uh, self-harmed here by uh, destroying our economy and the whole furlough scheme, which I've said right from the outset, uh, I thought was a crazy uh, way of dealing with this, has actually, you know, led us to a situation now where people don't want to go back to work. Well, I think and that's true, because particularly now, particularly with the weather being nice. I mean, I was looking around yesterday, I took the dog to the beach down on the south, south coast of Sussex. Um, lots of people out and about picnicking. And I thought to myself, I guarantee you at least 50% of these travellers uh, probably are furloughed. They're probably not that bothered about going back to work. They all look very happy. I mean, we might have a very happy country, Lance, as a result, which might be nice, although social well, there's media... There is something to be said for happiness. And there joy. is. That's, that's there is, although, although if you spent time, as I did on social media at the weekend, you would wonder how happy people actually are. They seem to be very bitter. Pa- pa- well, par- probably want to cancel happiness. <laughs> well, there's a lot of teachers on there calling me a Nazi, which seems a bit unfair, uh, but we'll come back to that later. But, I mean, it's good to see, is it not, people like Primark and uh, and John Lewis turning down government money. And that could be the beginning of quite what I would regard as a decent movement. Well, look, some business can afford to turn it down. Um, others can't afford to. Others are claiming when they shouldn't be claiming. You know, th- this, again, is what, one of the problems with uh, what the government's done here. They've tried to have this sort of one-size-fits-all solution uh, to a problem that's affecting different people in very different ways. And, um, you know, who knows what the cost of it will be. It's going to, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, Rishi Sunak is Father Christmas come early. But, you know, once we've got to start paying for this, uh, he might be a little bit less popular. Yes. And how is your business doing, Lance? Is it picking up? Is it showing any signs of sort of going back to where it was, the levels it was at before the shutdown? No, not not really. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the restaurant, hotel, uh, hospitality arena is is a complete washout and it will be for the rest of this year. Yes, you'll see some casual dining. But, you know, if people aren't going to be working in the city, then, you know, all the little coffee shops and things are going to struggle. Um, fine dining is, you know, is is just not happening at all. Tom Kerridge was on Twitter over the weekend saying that he booked in loads of people to the restaurant. They just didn't show in the end, which is a complete disaster for a restaurant because, you know, when you know you're, you know, you're fully booked, you make sure the staff are there, you can't prepare the food. And then if they don't show, you know, you're getting a double hit. Uh, so, you know, and of course you can't then fill the tables with other diners no. because you, you've said they're booked. So, so it's, you know, um, you know, high-end dining is, is going to be a real struggle. What Sadiq Khan did, you know, in increasing the, um, the congestion charge has uh, is, is also put another nail in that coffin too. Um, I, I think when furlough ends, a lot of, you know, my, my real fear is that when furlough comes to an end, a lot of these uh, um, businesses might decide just to pack it in completely and then wipe out all their old debts. And, and maybe some will start again when the, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the opportunity looks... Uh, right for them to do so, which probably won't be this year. So I think hospitality is in for a really tough time. Um, other businesses, I don't know. There will be changes, you know, people working from home rather than going into offices. And, you know, maybe that can work and maybe that will be the way things are done in future. Who knows? Yeah, I think that's very true because it's still very quiet on the tubes in London, very quiet on the trains coming in as well, uh, despite the fact that they're supposed to be now up and running to sort of 75% of what they were at. Certainly the uh, the owner of the restaurant I was in on, on Thursday night was saying to me that basically they can break even at the current rate of uh, occupancy, but they can't really make 
make any money, but he was quite happy to be open and actually breaking even rather than actually making no money at all. Yeah, well, breaking even is obviously better than uh, losing money, which obviously can't uh, can't sustain itself. But uh, I say in, 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 in my business, yeah, so half our business is, is off a cliff. Um, we, we, we're able to help plug that gap through our online home delivery business, Foreman and Field, which did was doing very, very well, actually, at the beginning of this thing. And it's, it's now settled down to probably about 500%, sounds like a lot, five, five times more than it was this time last year. But that was always still a relative, you know, that's fantastic, I'm not complaining, but that was always a small part of our business. Um, but, you know, again, you know, business people have to change the way they do things if they want to, if they want to survive. And, um, and, you know, we, we've done precisely that. Sure. Um, people have to eat. No, people do have to eat, and I have to I have to say, without wishing to give you too much of a plug, your food is glorious, uh, and I can recommend it to anyone that's ever, ever uh, wanted to try it. Let me ask you about uh, today's business in Parliament, though, because Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, uh, is going to be talking about future immigration and border policies post-Brexit. Uh, obviously, we've seen over the weekend the story coming out about the, uh, the, the sort of preparations being made in Kent uh, for the immediate aftermath of Brexit. You have, have been a, a, an MEP for both the Tory party and the Brexit party, Lance. I mean, what are you making so far of what you're seeing uh, and the government's kind of negotiation targets? Well, like any negotiation, um, it's all going to happen at the last minute. And if a deal is going to be done, this will happen in November because there's no point in negotiating the deal at this stage mm. uh, when, when both parties are pushing for, for better terms. Um, and, and the best chance of actually getting a free trade deal is if the EU know that we're fully prepared for no deal. This was always the argument. Yeah. And so part of what we're doing now is preparation for no deal. And if we get no deal, fine, we'll be prepared. But it will help us negotiate a deal later on if we are fully prepared. And that's why the government just has to go down this line now. There was no, you know, this is what they should have done this time last year, but there was no serious approach because, uh, you know, the, the thing wasn't decided at that stage and uh, the Ramonas were still hoping that Brexit might not happen. But it is happening now. And so we have to put uh, put these measures in place. Yes, I think that's very true. I think this time last year, if you remember, Lance, we were sitting in a kind of stalemate. I was down in Westminster quite regularly in the tent of common sense, trying to make sense of it all uh, and finding sort of people blocking every single move. At one point, you just thought we're never going to get out of this kind of square that we're in because everybody's shut all the doors. Yeah, it was was like Groundhog Day. uh, But obviously that's been completely overtaken by COVID now. And uh, of course, you have some people wishing that... uh, that we were talking about Brexit and not COVID. But um, no, we, we, we've got to get on with it. And I, I think most people recognise that now. I think even Keir Starmer has sort of said that, uh, you know, he wasn't going to oppose the, the, the delay to the, the, or the extension, which we now passed that point. Um, and the CBI also said they're not going to try and delay the extension, although they keep changing their tune every, uh, every week or two. Um, but uh, I think everyone recognises now we've got to get on. Even the EU is starting to come to terms with it, which has been a, a quite a tough battle. Yes, indeed. And, and they've had another blow, I think, just in the last few hours with Poland uh, electing somebody who's something of a Eurosceptic uh, to run Poland. So you never know if, in fact, this, uh, uh, this sort of negotiation of ours goes well. There might be other countries who decide, Do you know what, we may not want to be part of this European Union either. Well, that's right, and that was the you know that was the catch twenty two that uh, Barnier was always in. You see, if if 
Britain does well outside of the EU, it does beg the question for other EU members, what are we, you know, what are we doing here? Do we, do we need to be in the EU? Look at Britain, we can be independent, we can have our own, you know, trade policies and so on, independent trade policies and have sovereignty and so on. So they might decide they want to follow in our footsteps. If on the other hand, the EU punishes us uh, by leaving and we do badly out of this, um, it will reflect even more so on the EU and mm. they'll be self-harming as a result. So, you know, it was always very difficult. You know, Barney never, never had an easy path to tread. And, um, you know, the, the closer we get to deadline day, it's the EU that have to decide which, they, which way they want to play this. You know, we know we decided which way we want to go. We're Brexiting. The EU has to decide how they want to, you know, how they want to handle our departure. And are you confident as a businessman um, that this campaign of check, change, go, which they're announcing today, uh, which is basically going to inform certainly most businesses, including yours, no doubt, uh, this is what you need to do to be prepared. Are you confident that you won't be suffering as a result? Um, completely confident. Yeah, businesses, the private sector is much more effective at uh, dealing with information that it needs to deal with, because at the end of the day, if they don't deal with it, they'll lose money. Mm. And uh, the, the, the profit motive is a very strong incentive to get things right. Um, so, you know, at this stage, there isn't much many businesses that have to do. They have to have an EORI number. So they have to register for that number. But that's all they know at this stage. Until, you know, until we know whether a deal has been negotiated, you don't really know much more. But it's, it's not that complicated. You know, we as a business, we export to the EU, we export to the rest of the world. Outside of EU, every country has its own rules. Some are very easy to export to. You know, when you export to the USA, you literally go onto a website. It takes about 15 seconds just to key in a few things, and then your export's ready. You know, ready to, to rock and roll. Um, other countries, China, um, it took us quite a few months to get the permits in place to uh, to, to to do that. It's quite a funny story, actually. We, we filled in all these forms, and um, you know, we put our company name H Foreman and Son on the forms. Um, and then they, they noticed that our packaging had a dot between the H and the foreman. And so they said our, all our forms were incorrect and we had to start the whole process again, which took another three months. So, you know, you, you learn, you, you know, you learn when you're dealing with each country and we'll have to do this with the EU, you know, what, is, what, it, what it is exactly that they need. And, you know, businesses will just get on and do it. You know, America's not in the EU. They export more to the EU than we do and we're in it. So it's not <laughs> yes, no, you make a very good point, Lance. This is great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Lance Foreman there, former MEP and businessman, uh, as he says, no problem at all after Brexit exporting to the EU or indeed any other part of the world because it's all about private money. It's all about private business. It's all about uh, the way that commerce actually works. All these Ramonas who would have you believe that the world is going to come crumbling down around us because we've left something that we've only been in for a very short period of our history. It's a complete and utter nonsense. Brexit is happening and it's going to be very exciting and it's going to be great fun and it's going to be tremendous. All of these people who are telling you it's going to be a disaster do not know uh, their backside from their elbow, if you'll pardon the phrase. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Welcome back to uh, the fastest growing radio show on the entire planet, in the universe, in, in any way, shape or form that you could imagine. More and more of you are watching us on uh, YouTube as well. Uh, I'm delighted to say it's time for Peter Hitchens to join us once more uh, for some more intelligent conversation, the like of which you will hear nowhere else. Peter, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you. And I can say that with some uh, surety because I see that you uh, 
turned down an opportunity to appear on the state broadcaster earlier this week, uh, which I was very pleased about. Well, I just, I just, I, I, I was amazed at how angry I was when yeah. they, they called me up on Friday and said, "Will I come on and talk about face muzzles?" After after three months, yes. almost total silence right. on on huge issues, uh, they finally turned to me for a th- three minute cameo yeah. appearance, balanced by four people who disagree with me. Yes, the and, and on which uh, you would be on, constantly on, interrupted. On, on, no on, doubt. On a secondary subject, right? basically. I mean, yeah. I, I just felt the heck with it. Who watches it anyway? Yeah, well, exactly. Fewer and fewer people. I mean, I've got a massive number of people who listen to my show who are currently, even as we speak, cancelling their licence because it turns out that there is a place on the website for the BBC where you can basically say, I, I wish to now opt out of the TV licence, which I didn't know, to be honest. Um, no. So, so I, lots I of people are cancelling. I sort of obligation to, to, to keep a television licence because uh, sometimes the BBC has paid me um, and... I, I do have a television set, and it, it's, a, it's a legal requirement. But mm. the moment is, is, I have to say, fast approaching. Well, I'll consider getting rid of that television set and not watching any live TV anymore and getting rid of it because the BBC's performance over the past three months has been so shocking. Yes. I mean, one of the reasons why most people in this country don't even know there is controversy about the mess this country is in is, is because of the BBC's mm. shockingly bad journalism. Yes, and rather bizarrely last night, I switched on uh, BBC4 to discover a two-hour programme. And now, you might differ from me. You might say, well, that would be quite interesting. But it's a two-hour programme of a GoPro camera attached to a canal boat. And basically, no audio whatsoever, just listening to the boat going up the canal for two hours. That was it. That was the show. I believe this is what's called slow television. Yeah. Yeah, well, it certainly was I mean, so. Each to each to his own. There are, <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are certainly things on on television which are much worse than that. Yeah, I suppose you're right. That is true. Let's talk about masks. Uh, we were just speaking before the news to a doctor, uh, Dr. Lawrence Gurlis, who said that he felt people who go on public transport without wearing a mask are being terribly irresponsible. Well, I can't I can't follow his logic here. I mean, first of all, the the the, the fatality rate of, of the disease itself uh, is extremely low, especially among the sort of healthy people who, who you would generally find traveling on public transport. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, the number, of, the, the, the number of people who actually have it is also extremely low. So I'm not quite, I, I don't quite know why such a level of emotion should be directed on this matter. I mean, mm. the, the, obviously, people shouldn't go around deliberately infecting other people. Uh, if you actually have a dangerous communicable disease, then it, it's a good idea to be in quarantine. But even if you if you had a coronavirus and didn't know, as I say, the risks from of, of A, passing it on, and B, of that leading to any serious consequences, are small. And the, the idea that you should completely change your habits and, and assume that all the, the, the natural arrangements of, of, of the world, of breathing and everything else, which have applied for the previous countless numbers of centuries during which human beings have been alive, should be abandoned and mm. you should wear a, 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 a more or less useless, I have to say, cloth nappy on your face uh, because of this. I, it, it just seems to me to be a jump of logic which, uh, which I cannot... Mm honestly take and to be more superstition than science to be quite frank i think that's the trouble and that's proven i think by the fuss everybody's made about donald trump finally being photographed wearing a mask as if that is some kind of proof positive you know whenever he does anything people say that it's a mistake or he's an idiot or whatever Um, however now that he's wearing a mask apparently that's proof that we should all be wearing one it's very odd, isn't it? It seems to me to be yet, yet more evidence against the idea. <laughs> well, you might you might very well say that. What about your idea? I quite like I quite like this idea of yours to have sort of relaxed 
uh, forms of travel for those who are not frightened to travel without a mask? Yeah, I think I think that the time has come. It's plain that an awful lot of people, and this is partly thanks to the BBC, as we discussed, are never going to be persuaded that mm. there's anything wrong with this madness. Uh, that the, the government is never going to admit that it made a terrible mistake, which would be the only other way of clearing the air. That those of us, which is a substantial but, but minority, but, but a minority nonetheless, those of us who, who, who think that life is for living, uh, should be allowed to make declarations that we indemnify employers and we're not going to sue anybody if we catch coronavirus. Mm. Uh, and the establishments which are willing to, to host us uh, should p- post up signs saying we are, we are relaxed and, and those who are relaxed should wear badges saying I'm a relaxed person. And we could go to the pub, to the restaurant, to church, to wherever it happens to be uh, without any of these foolish restrictions. And there would also, I would suggest that the railways should run at least one carriage on each train, which was a relaxed carriage where people uh, could continue to act as, as if they were normal and preferably where refreshments were mm. once again served, which has stopped on all the trains I know. Right. And, uh, and, and that uh, the, I'd be quite happy under this circumstance alone for this period uh, to undergo tracking and tracing, because I believe that if those people who were relaxed and those people who continue to follow these fetishes uh, were measured, uh, you would find not merely that all of us who were relaxed were much happier uh, than the people who were still shrouded in plastic and, 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 and face nappies and all the rest of it. But also we were much healthier too. Mm. Uh, I think that it would, if, if, over six months, I'm absolutely confident that you would find that the pe- people who were prepared to live normally uh, were just as free from the coronavirus as those who didn't, if not freer, and also were in general healthier and, uh, yes. and happier, both physically and mentally. And, and I think that might be a way of persuading them. People could gradually come over and get their relaxed badges and start uh, and start coming into the relaxed pubs and restaurants mm. and churches and wherever it is. I and it, it, I think it's it, it's completely voluntary, and nobody's going. I don't want to compel anybody to do anything they don't want to do. That's very much not my not my no. view. If people want to want want to wear these things and go to, and, and and go to places where they're worn, then that that's their choice. But I think it's a mistake, and I think the best way to demonstrate it's a mistake is, is in practice. Yeah, sure. But I guess people would say... Which, which goes back to living normally. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think we need to, to do that. Um, but there are two kind of schools of thought now, aren't there? There are those who would say, it's all very well for you to say, I feel confident, I feel comfortable, and I'm quite happy to take a risk. But mm-hmm. are you then possibly putting the community in some kind of danger uh, if you are likely to be sort of um, laissez-faire, if you like, with, with, with the restrictions and the health and safety rules because you might then give it to somebody else? Well, I've, I've, I've sort of dealt with that by pointing out just how very unlikely it is mm. that I would, A, give it to anybody else, or B, that if I did do so, that they would have any serious... Uh, that they would have a serious disease. And most of the people who are currently being detected and the governments are devoting huge efforts to detecting cases of coronavirus, uh, most people are being detected to have no symptoms. Mm. Uh, constantly, if you try and find out from the government how many of those detected have got symptoms or are seriously ill, they, they don't know. No. Well, it turns out that after... The, the reason for that is that the, the answer is very, very few. And I, the, the, the number of deaths uh, from coronavirus has been in steep decline since April the 8th. Yeah. Uh, and is now bumping on the bottom. We have to remember when you hear the figures of deaths that are now uh, announced that it is quite normal for 1,600 people to die every day in this yeah. country. That is the normal mortality rate. It's sad in each, on each occasion. Sure. But we really can't say that the numbers of people dying from coronavirus at the moment are so outrageously large that we have to change the entire way that we live. No, and also the numbers uh, of people who have been, say, under the age of 39 uh, are minuscule. 
you know, the, almost, the, you almost know. none. Yeah, yes. it's it's an, an, it, it, it's it is it is very very small indeed, and it, it, it it's always it has always been. I'll say it again: a matter of proportion. Mm. And people say, okay, so it's selfish for me to go out without a muzzle on. Well, I suppose uh, one could equally well say, and, and I personally would because I'm very anti-car, it's quite selfish for people to drive cars at the speeds they drive them yeah. at. Uh, but I'm afraid that even I, much as I dislike cars, recognize that it's, it's simply not practical in our society to put the sort of restrictions on driving that would make it considerably yeah. safer. People aren't going to drive at 20 miles an hour. They're not going to have speed governors in their cars. They're not going to accept a driving test which really weeded out the, the, the bad guys, and nor are they going to accept the sort of policing which found out the number of people now driving without licenses and insurance, of which there is a very large number, I think. Mm. Oh, there's a very extraordinary large number. And let's go back to Leicester, which we talked about last week. Um, where it now would appear, actually, as a, a rather good byproduct of the fact that uh, they've put it into lockdown, it would appear that there's 10,000 people working as slaves in Leicester in the garment business. Now, I don't understand how that can be allowed to happen, um, not least uh, at all, but certainly in these circumstances where we're supposed to be trying to stay healthy. Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's another issue. Uh, and I think that, that it's been, I mean, I'm glad as one always is to see injustice uncovered and put right. Uh, I think this issue has been a, a way of diverting from the fact that the, the, the Leicester episode is very peculiar. Yeah. Uh, I pointed out last week that the, the number of testing centers in Leicester has increased exponentially in the two weeks before it was announced to be a COVID hotspot. Mm. Uh, and my view is you shall find since then i checked last week and the the, the leicester city council has embarked on a on a, on a most tremendous uh, campaign of seeking out uh, the disease people are actually going to people's homes and banging on the door and, and, and saying will you be tested to discover whether you have covid well, if you did that all over the country then you would probably find quite a few people who've got it because what's actually happening at the moment uh, despite all the palaver is almost certainly that the country is gradually acquiring herd immunity from a disease which the government has actually been quite unable to control. Yes. And so as far as the way that this continued unlocking goes on, I mean, you, you, you told me, I think, last week that you'd been out for dinner. I was out for dinner on Thursday night, not far from your office, actually, in Kensington High Street. Um, and I found it to be a most liberating experience. And it was great to actually be out, having somebody prepare and, and cook food for you and give you a glass of wine. Um, it was really amazing. And, and, and yeah, I think... And, and be glad I'm glad to see you. Yes. Not to, not to treat you as if you were a toxic dump. <laughs> exactly right. Which and is and the I way mean, so many people seem to want to they, they, they veer away from you in case you in case you give them the plague and, and, and wear visors. Mm. For, for goodness sake. I mean, it, it's the destruction of that most basic uh, human need, which is to be able to trust other people. Uh, we don't even trust them to come close to us now. Mm. No, I know. And I suppose there's a reason for that. But I, th I find fewer and fewer people now are of that mindset. Most people now, I mean, by the end of the evening, you probably know the restaurant, it's Il Portico, down at the end of... Um, oh, I know the one, yes. Yeah. High Street. Well, I've got to know the I owner quite the owner well. wrote, wrote something for the men on Sunday yeah. about, about his plight a few weeks ago. He did, yeah. yeah. And I mean, he's a lovely guy. He's been on this show quite a few times, but he was wearing one of the visors. And in the end, towards the end of the evening, he, he came and sat with us and he said, do you mind if I take this off? I was like, please do, please do. We and, wish you, know, you would, yeah. And it was no problem at all. You know, why would it be a problem? Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of crazy. But it, but again, it's not really necessarily being policed. It's kind of being self-policed, it seems to it's me. It's unpoliceable. You would have to have a sort of Iranian uh, kind of state. And even there, I have to say, the rules are not that toughly policed. For, for, of, of tremendous East German levels of interference yes. with what people do to enforce this. That is one of the reasons I'm, Michael Gove 
who seems to have got into trouble for saying that, that, that the compulsory wearing of muzzles in shops is not necessarily the case, right. has, a, has the good sense to realize that this is A, uh, impossible to police, and B, will create huge problems for shopkeepers. All it will do, in, by my guess, is increase the, the trend towards people buying on the internet and not going to the high street and say, I can't be bothered. Hmm to muzzle my face just to go and, just to go and buy some groceries. Right. And so, okay, well, let, let, click and collect. Here we go. It's not, it won't right. be, they, they will stop going to shops. It will kill the high street. And, and does a conservative government, as it styles itself to be, actually want to kill the high street? Well, I don't think they do, and I think that's... Well, then, they that's then they shouldn't impose muzzle-wearing on, on, on people going to the shops. But I've, I've come more and more to the conclusion as well that London particularly, and certainly other parts of the country as well, will not return to any form of economic prosperity unless and until tourism starts up again. And until people can start flying here and coming here and staying in hotels and spending money, I just don't think that there's going to be any recovery. Well, I think you're almost certainly right, and I have the problem with that is when will that be? Mm. Uh, and uh, say the bells of Stepney, and I, I'm afraid it's uh, it may well be never at this rate because coming you know, the, the 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 tsunami has begun. What we see now, we're on the beach, and the, all the water is withdrawn, and it's strangely calm. Yeah, uh, the the economic tsunami is coming. Uh, and what that will do to tourism and travel and people attending university and trade of all kinds and employment is is so catastrophic that people aren't even thinking about it. I say we're in that... Uh, have you been to Niagara Falls? I have. Above Niagara Falls, you know, the, ri the river runs quite smoothly until about yeah. well, 100 yards before the lip. Yes, I went you there once. Be, you could be in a punt up there, and, 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 and if you didn't know, you wouldn't know you were about to go no, over. No, that's right. I mean, I, I, was, I was there at night, and what I didn't realise was that on the, the, beneath me was, was a, about three feet of ice had formed because of the uh. spray, and it was in the middle of winter, as a yeah. result of which I was very much higher than the fence, which was meant to stop me from oh. falling in. And it was quite frightening, so I didn't Probably stay, stay didn't around for a good thing you didn't find out until afterwards. No, yeah, exactly, but, exactly no, right. Nerve-wracking. But, but I mean, it's, my, it's, my, to my me, it's Niagara. I just, see, I just feel where... where we're, 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 we're merrily rolling down the stream. No, and so, gosh, they say, how clever of Rishi Sunak to hand out more non-existent money. Well, yeah, great. Uh, where is it going to come from? I'll tell you. The money, money of that kind is always harvested from the future. Your future, my future. Yeah. And, 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 but actually, in this case, the quite near future. But they do keep saying, um, and I've made this point to you before, and I know you and I disagree about this, that, that it's such a colossal amount of money that is being generated to save the economy that it will inevitably, surely, be backed by any any continuing sort of government. I, I really can't see any Conservative government wanting to put up taxes to pay for it because that would be the death knell for them. I mean, the problem with governments is that they're not islands. Uh, we are connected to the world economy, and if confidence in the British economy, which is already a bit shaky, goes, mm. then the value of the pound sterling goes, and our ability to borrow on world markets goes. And that creates, that will be one of the many pressures, which I suspect, and one can't tell, will create a great deal of inflation. That is to say, savings will be wiped out. And those people, this is this very discriminating thing here, uh, a collapse in the currency absolutely devastates the, the, the middle classes, the, mm. the people who've been cautious, the people who've been thrifty, the people who've saved for their... And that's who they can't tax, that's what and I'm if, saying. If you, and if you devastate the middle classes, then actually you, you bash away at one of the principal pillars of the, of the civil society. 
and, and and that is what Europe discovered between the wars. It was a lot of what a lot of the political disasters which followed in the 1930s followed the, the devastation of the middle classes, mm. particularly of the German-speaking nations yeah. in the 1920s. And I I, th- I think there is a direct uh, a direct link between those two. Yeah, absolutely. Scared I mean, the pants off me. Yeah, I mean, talking about travelling, my daughter got a plane yesterday uh, from Dubai to New York. Um, and uh, I asked her, because she was talking to me while she was on it, I said, well, what's it like? She said, well, you're supposed to wear a mask apart from when you're eating, drinking, uh, or sleeping, uh, which is yeah. basically all you ever do on a, on a plane. So she wasn't wearing one. Well, again, how, what, what sort of airline staff are going to spend all their time going up and down the road <laughs> put your mask on, put your mask right. on, put your mask on. It's over a you know, six or seven hour flight that's going to drive everybody mad. Mm. The sensible thing to do is just to quietly look the other way, isn't it? That's, again, laws which are unenforceable, and rules which are unenforceable actually, in, in the end, uh, undermine the whole idea of law and rules in, in the first place. Yeah. It's, silly. it's silly to make them. And they're not, they, do, they just don't fit naturally with the way in which normal people live. And that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why it's such a bad idea. And I guess as we see the world around us doing different things, I mean, do you expect to see this government kind of... I know you've... I mean, Boris Johnson has now started saying that they made some mistakes and they got some <laughs> things wrong. Um, do you expect any more of that to come from them? Well, it will have to. Uh, but but I, I don't think they're ever going to admit that they made the fundamental mistake which they made of, of, of diving into, in, into panic and shutting down the country because that basically would be an admission they were incompetent and shouldn't be in office. Mm. And so they're not going to do that. No. And in any case, so all this, all these things we're discussing now will seem like a holiday when the economic troubles kick in. That's the other problem. Mm. It's all, this, this is all, it's important. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's unimportant, but the thing is, it will, it will appear to be so small compared with the, when, the, when the really big unemployment hits. And you think that's the autumn, don't you? I think it's the autumn. I don't see how it can be avoided. I just, the government simply has not got the money to carry on the furlough much longer. Yeah. And, uh, and when the furlough ends, then an awful lot of people are going to discover they haven't actually got jobs to go back to. Well, I was encouraged to see both Primark and John Lewis saying to the government, we don't want your money. Um, so at least that's just maybe a step in the right direction. Well, OK. Uh, I mean, it's, it is, it, it's, it's a nice gesture, but it's, it really is drop in the bucket time, isn't mm. it? This is, you know, the, the, the quantities of, of, of national wealth and the life savings of this country, which have been tipped down an enormous hole, for no good purpose at the moment, is unbelievable. No, quite. Well, Peter, once again, we've come to the end of our chat this week. We'll talk to you again uh, next Monday. Uh, we'll see whether anything has changed. Thank you very much, as ever. Peter Hitchens there uh, still pretty convinced that there is an economic tsunami yet to hit the country. I still think the government will do its level best to ensure that that doesn't happen and they will do their level best to ensure that basically uh, the economy is kept afloat by hook or by crook because they can't allow it to go down. It's that simple, isn't it? This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's the story that really has rocked the entire world because not just is it about uh, sleaze and is it about money and is it about influence, but it's about some of the highest profile names uh, that everybody has seen over the course of the last several years. Epstein helpers could be next for FBI swoop, uh, is what it says in the Daily Mail today. Uh, after Ghislaine's arrest, four other women uh, faced the police spotlight. And these are all women that I've never heard of, uh, but who were all supposedly linked to Epstein uh, 
Well, the picture they've used uh, is of Ghislaine Maxwell with another woman called Sarah Kellen in New York in 2005. Ghislaine Maxwell is appearing in court tomorrow, we understand. Uh, let's find out from Robert Jobson what we can expect. Robert, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Hi, Michael. Thank you very much for joining us. I mean, it's a bit, it's, it's going to be a fascinating hearing, this, I guess, because we don't know precisely um, whether she's going to get bail, what exactly the charges are going to be, how widespread they're going to be, um, and how even she's going to look, I suppose. Well, the reality is the authorities have been worried about giving her bail because there's been a, a, a question about the last year or so in trying to find her for mm. the investigation. So that's probably not likely to happen. But, you know, given what happened to Epstein in prison uh, and the fact that he, he met that untimely demise, there'll be an awful lot of interest in that. What she knows, I mean, we, we, we can only wait to hear what she actually says. But the truth is that photograph keeps coming back to haunt Prince, Prince Andrew because yeah. there, there she is in the background, lurking in the background with all these accusations against her. Whilst he's got his arm around this clearly a very young girl. Mm. So, I mean, ultimately, even if she says she doesn't know an awful lot about what was going on with uh, Epstein after a certain time, that photograph puts her right at the centre of this. And we do know that Victoria Roberts, as she was, used to work for Epstein. So it's going to be a problem for her. Yeah, it really is. And the point is, I suppose, as well, um, that the charges are pretty serious from what we can see. I think there's about six or seven charges ranging from procurement uh, to basically um, aiding and assisting uh, in a, an illegal act being uh, taken out by uh, by Epstein and his friends having underage sex with, with a whole series of girls. Um, I mean, obviously, the big worry for, for presumably for Prince Andrew is whether she implicates him in any situation. There's been an awful lot of talk about that with friends saying there's no way she's going to drop Prince Andrew in it. She's facing a, long, a lot of charges here, quite mm. sordid charges, which could put her away for the rest of her life. So um, the, the suggestion is that they built the charges up, the FBI, so that they can do some sort of deal that, that, that would give her a, a smaller sentence. And then given the smaller sentence, we involve her naming names yeah. of some of these very high-profile people. Right. Now, at the moment, we're not going to find out exactly what she knows straight away. But if it does come to trial, I'm sure that we will, because, you know, otherwise she's going to be the one facing really everything that the whole weight will fall on her over everything that Epstein did. So I can't imagine that she's not going to sing like a canary. No, that's the thing. And also, she's been making it clear over the weekend. I'm not sure how she's done this, but she's put it out sort of through friends that she hasn't really had much to do with Epstein for the best part of the last 15 or so years. Yeah, but that doesn't really add up. You see the photographs of her um, and, at parties with him and the testimony of some of these girls. Now, some of the testimony has been called into question um, of, of some of the girls involved. But ultimately, you know, they put um, they put Ghislaine Maxwell left, right and centre at all of the situations that Epstein was at. So it's very difficult for her to to deny this. Yes. And as far as, I mean, we know that the American prosecution, prosecutors can be very sort of uh, filled with hyperbole about how big their case is and what they know. Um, and they've been making some pretty bold statements about her, calling her a villain, saying that she's more or less the most evil woman around, uh, that, that she's been running around for the last year. I think she's moved 36 times in the past year, supposedly, she says, to avoid the press. But presumably, um, they would say to avoid prosecution and arrest. Well, they would say that, but there does seem to be an awful lot of games going on here. I mean, even with the dealings with Prince, Prince Andrew, that he's saying that he's trying to get in touch with them, and we know that he has tried to get in touch with them, they say he hasn't. So we know that there's some game playing going on. 
I mean, it does seem odd that she, if she was facing a, a possibility of, of uh, criminal charges, that a woman with so many, so much money and so many different passports or choices of countries to live in would choose to stay in the United States. To me, it seems that there must have been some conversations going on mm. between her lawyers and the FBI building up to this arrest. And I think there's been a lot of drama and, and uh, about it in terms of the media, but they must have had some sort of conversation and knowledge of what was going to be going on. Right, because there are people who have also said that if she had wanted to get out of the country, uh, maybe this was a COVID problem because she wanted she would have got out of the country but couldn't. I mean, she's got three passports. She could live in any number of different places outside of America. And if she'd wanted to really avoid this, surely she would have left the country months ago, wouldn't she? Well, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, this has been in the offing for many, many years and um, I'm surprised that she didn't frankly because it would have been a lot more difficult for her to be uh, moved out of the country um, a, a, another country that had been involved in extradition etc so yeah I'm surprised that she didn't that's why I believe there must have been some sort of conversation between the authorities and her lawyers mm. along the way. Yeah. And what are they saying um, at sort of uh, Buckingham Palace HQ? Because obviously Prince Andrew, again, has made it clear that he was quite happy to talk to the American authorities, but he keeps saying he's happy to talk to them, but he keeps not talking to them. I, I, well, at Buckingham Palace HQ, they're not saying anything at all because, of course, Andrew's now stepped down from public duties and they've sort of distanced themselves from mm. that. But in terms of people close to him, they, they say they definitely had a conversation with the uh, previous legal teams in America um, at the beginning of the at the beginning of the year. Um, they have tried on three occasions since then to connect and discuss the framework of which they wanted uh, they wanted to set up conversations between uh, their people and Prince Andrew's people. But the truth of it is um, that hasn't happened, mm. and um, they've effectively been ghosted by the authorities. I think it's because. They've now put in their official claim that they want to put Andrew in court, in a UK court, so he can be questioned under oath, not to do it on a voluntary basis. Right. And can they do that? Because, you know, there seems to be some doubt about the legalities of quizzing somebody like him um, by force, as it were, in another country. Well, if he if he fails to... Uh, uh, they put this, this claim in through the, through the government to government. If he fails to give voluntary evidence, what they're trying to do is effectively force him into a UK court where he's basically given evidence as a witness. But you know, they don't. his lawyers, quite understandably, do not want to leave him exposed and shouldn't leave him exposed if they're doing their job uh, correctly. Um, ultimately, it's, it's, he's, in a much, <laughs> he's in a different position to Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine mm. Maxwell is, now, is, is in, behind bars and he absolutely denies all charges against him and always has done. But... Um, the problem he's got now is that with Ghislaine Maxwell, who clearly was a very close friend of his, who's been to Royal Ascot with him, who mm. was in the Royal Box with him, who's been to Royal Parties, is now facing these horrendous charges and they're, and they're pretty sordid charges. And there's this, this, this photograph of him with this underage, with this very young woman who makes these allegations against him, and there they all, all are in that one picture. Right. And unless he can sort of almost prove himself to be innocent, he has got a cloud over him. Yeah. I mean, it almost takes us back, Robert, and you've done this for many a decade, as, as have I. It uh, takes us back to that time when, uh, sort of pre the divorce of Charles and Diana, the the palace and, and its PR machine was literally hopeless when it came to kind of trying to sort anything out. Because Andrew, surely, even now, I mean, it's very clear that he's a friend of Ghislaine Maxwell's. He surely needs to say something about it, doesn't he? 
Well, I think it's gone beyond that, Mike, because the reality um, is the Palace now are not even really speaking on his behalf, right. the PR people. He's got a team of lawyers and PR people who are yeah, doing as good a job as they can. Um, you know, they're not cheap, I'm sure, but no. they're doing the best that they can. But, I mean, one thing I do not understand, and, and I've said this to people close to him, is, look, one thing that Prince Andrew's got to his advantage is that he had, uh, you know, one or two Scotland Yard detectives, protection officers from SO14 yeah. with him at all times. Now, surely they've got a diary of events where they had to log where he was at all times. And if they've got a way of proving that he wasn't at places that these girls have suggested he, mm. he was, they can get these Scotland Yard officers to swear it affidavit, and then that then it all goes away. Yeah. Well, maybe there's a reason for that, Robert. I mean, obviously, which we well, can't maybe say. There is. Um, equally, <laughs> presumably, the, those diaries and those records could be subpoenaed by the New York prosecutors. Well, they could do, but we still don't... They're playing, as I say, very strange game in cat and mouse they're not really declaring their hand it's mm. it's uh, it, it's a strange one like that but i mean i do know also having gone into details of this this case that there are a lot of failings on the other side i mean the the claims by victoria roberts and uh, you know a lot of them the dates don't add up the time is completely wrong i do know that she had a diary that she wrote 10 years after the event that after the event that she made uh, that she was when we were working with the newspaper a reporter on this. She burnt that diary when the FBI got involved. So that you know everything's not as clear cut as it may appear. And I think that Prince Andrew's team, even if he wants to speak out to defend himself, are going to do their have to do their best to to make sure they don't leave him in a position that is, is dangerous for him. Mm. Um, and he, that's even if you are completely innocent of anything that you're being accused of. Anybody um, would be doing the same. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's entirely possible that he knew that Epstein was up to no good, but took no part in any of it. Um, but now he's kind of embarrassed by that. And that could be the end of it. But again, it's, if that's it's, the it's, case, if that's the case, then why not just say so? Well, because I think they need to work out between the legal teams and the fact that we've got two different legal systems here, the parameters on which he's being questioned and which those answers will be logged. And also, you've got to remember, in all, uh, in all seriousness, you know, everybody seems to be jumping to conclusions. If you go on social media, which is not always a good thing to do with these things, you know, this, the, the Prince Andrew's been tried, convicted, and whatever. But the fact that the fact is, with, with these situations, we have had cases such as that high-profile case involving very senior uh, figures in the Conservative Party uh, who were accused of of um, abuse by uh, you know uh, that character last couple of years ago, mm. and it proved to be a fantasist. And we had. We've had other cases where also, you know, people were very close to uh, high-profile people that were later proved to be um, uh, paedophiles or whatever, who had no idea whatsoever. Mm. I mean, you know, Prince Charles and Diana used to use Jimmy Savile as a um, marriage guidance counsellor. Yeah. There are cases where people genuinely do not know what is going on. And Andrew's claims are that, you know, he only went to see Epstein maybe once or twice every year or even less than that actually right. and so he would might you know it, it may be that he didn't know what was going on
Yeah. I mean, it's hard to believe when you watch that uh, Netflix documentary series, which shows exactly what was going on uh, in each of the houses in which he lived, even the sort of the nature of the the, the furnishings and the, the the sculptures and the paint, paintings and the photographs and, and the activities that were going on. I mean, it seemed as though uh, certainly at most points in that uh, in Florida and certainly in in uh, in the Caribbean on the island, you know, there was a sort of never ending stream of young women around at all times. I mean, that Netflix um, documentary is pretty damning, but yeah. of course all documentaries with a slant on them can be extremely damning. But it's no doubt in my mind that Epstein was a, you know, was a paedophile and, and um, a serial paedophile mm. at that. And now, though, it seems that other people are going to, after he allegedly killed himself, or we don't know exactly what happened there, but um, after that, the other people are now the focus of, that, of, of his crimes. Mm. But we shouldn't necessarily, even with Ghislaine Maxwell, I mean, although she, there are suggestions of, you know, the allegations against her too, um, that she shouldn't necessarily take the can for what this guy did because, mm. you know, ultimately he was, the, he was the abuser and he was the person that was the driving force. Yeah, in, in in what was going on. No, absolutely right. Robert, thanks very much indeed. It's going to be fascinating to watch tomorrow. I'm sure uh, Virginia Roberts is going to be watching it very carefully uh, as well. Ghislaine Maxwell, due to appear in a Manhattan courtroom tomorrow, uh, we'll bring you that live as it happens, of course, right here on Talk Radio. Uh, we wait to see whether Prince Andrew uh, is going to form some kind of strategy. He keeps saying he wants to talk to the uh, US prosecutors, but he keeps not doing it. And they keep saying he keeps not doing it. Uh, we'll keep you abreast of all of that, of course. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, it is that time of the day, just after the 12.30 news, uh, where we talk about homeschooling, because uh, a lot of you parents out there still homeschooling your kids. Some of you may by now have just given up the ghost, I suppose. But if you are still doing it, uh, well done for a start. Uh, Now's your chance to take a little break uh, and get your children wrapped around the radio or possibly sitting down around the television if you're watching us on YouTube, because we're going to talk about clouds. Chris Bell, Chief Commercial Officer of WeatherQuest Limited, is also a lecturer in meteorology in the University of East Anglia. Chris, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I'm looking out at the sort of London skyline and it's quite a high cloud ceiling today. Um, I, I don't know if you're in East Anglia, but I'm, I'm seeing sort of what might be described as, um, I suppose, cirrus clouds, I think, quite a few of those and, and not uh, not too many, but a few cumulus maybe. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm just outside of Norwich at the moment and okay. um, uh, looking out here, I'm, I'm actually sitting outside in it, and um, there is quite a bit of um, high alto uh, cumulus and alto stratus cloud uh, above me. Mm. Tell us what the differences are between, I mean, I'm told, depending on what you read, there's either four kind of basic different types of clouds or there's ten. <laughs> I'll make it even simpler than that. So th- there are three main ta- cloud types. Um, uh, you've got your low cloud which we call stratus cloud and that's Mm. the layered cloud that you don't see a lot of definition to and and fog is a type of stratus cloud as well that's just on the ground right Uh, and then you've got your cumulus cloud this is your big uh fluffy cotton ball looking cloud that happens uh, a lot of times in the summertime as the land warms up and the air rises and forms these uh uh, pretty fluffy cumulus clouds and then you've got your uh, as you mentioned, your your high cloud, your cirrus cloud, which looks like uh, sort of icy feathers in the sky. Right. And so those three different types are formed in the same sort of way or are they formed in different ways? 
Well, they, they, they're actually formed in slightly different ways, but the mechanisms to form the cloud, the, the reasons for forming the cloud all need to be the same. You need to have something that helps lift the cloud um, or help, helps lift the moisture, and you have to have the moisture. So in order to get a cloud, you need something to make it rise uh, or, or the air to rise uh, and something uh, to provide the moisture content as well. So uh, for the sake of a, a cumulus cloud, for example, the, the white fluffy clouds that we talked about in the summer, um, you would have uh, some moisture, some humidity down near the ground. And as the day uh, heats up, uh, that hot air uh, begins to rise and form these turrets. And as the air rises, it cools. And if there's enough moisture, it will condense into a cloud. Right. So it's simply formed by just the heating of the day. Um, whereas uh, some of the stratus clouds and, and cirrus clouds are formed slightly differently. Right. Because sometimes when I look out at the sky, you see the clouds kind of moving, right? Um, I don't know whether that's because it's a windier day or today I'm looking out and they seem to be completely static. They don't seem to be moving at all. Yeah, that's right. So that all depends on what the wind is doing um, in the atmosphere above us. And it isn't always the same uh, as what you're feeling at ground level. So sometimes you can have really strong winds in the upper atmosphere and it can be very uh, light winds down near the ground. And that will mean that the clouds look like they're shooting across the sky. And, and other times like today, as you say, uh, the clouds aren't moving that quickly because uh, we're kind of uh, in a pattern where there's not much air up in the upper atmosphere pushing them along. Okay. And I mean, as far as rain clouds go, um, are all clouds, do they all contain rain or are only some clouds containing that's rain? A, that's a really good question, actually. Um, not all um, clouds uh, contain uh, rain, but they're all made up of tiny uh, droplets of water. So right. uh, in order for um, a cloud to be visible, then the, uh, the, the moisture content has to be enough so that the, the, the cloud droplet can be visible. Otherwise, what a lot of people don't realize is that obviously uh, in the air that we're breathing, uh, there is invisible water vapor mm. um, that we're breathing in and out. And that water vapor helps to form a cloud if there's enough of it uh, and it gets cool enough. But not all clouds produce rain. So in general, those uh, cirrus clouds that we talked about really high up in the atmosphere, they're made up of tiny ice crystals and they don't tend to rain. Um, there's not enough moisture in them to, to produce raindrops. And, and even some of these uh, low stratus clouds uh, uh, don't produce rain either. They're just made up of a, a thick content mm. of tiny uh, water droplets. Okay. And earlier on today, when I was looking out, this, when the show started at 10 o'clock, um, there were more clouds in the sky than there are now. Where have they gone? <laughs> um, good question. Most of them have gone away today to the southeast. So okay. our winds uh, uh, across the atmosphere today are blowing uh, air from west to east across Britain. Uh, and there's been little patches of cloud. It's quite a messy picture on the satellite image. So a satellite image, just so you get the terminology here, is... Um, we've got lots of satellites uh, orbiting the Earth at, at the moment, and lots of those are monitoring the weather. Yeah. And some of them are simply taking a picture uh, of what the clouds are doing. And that's what helps us weather forecasters predict the weather. Um, uh, knowing the direction and speed of those clouds helps to feed into our computer models where we can forecast. Okay. So a lot of the cloud today is moving away to your east. So at the moment, the cloud that was over London this morning is probably somewhere over the low countries, um, uh, the southern North Sea at the moment. Okay. And there's different kinds of cumulus clouds. I'm looking at a picture of alto cumulus, which looks like sort of, you know, little tiny, smaller clouds that make up what looks like a sort of field almost of, of little sort yes. of circular type clouds. What, what's the difference between alto cumulus and all the other cumulus clouds? And it, 
Yeah, right. So it, it's the height, basically. Ah. So an alto cumulus cloud is a is a cumulus cloud that's uh, higher up in the atmosphere. That's okay. kind of all there is to it, really. But um, it's interesting because uh, with cloud heights, uh, if you've got a warm front coming, so if you've got a front that's bringing warmer, more moist air, as it's moving in from the west, you'll start to notice a warm front well ahead of the actual arrival of that front at the ground. Right. So you'll start to see cirrus cloud, and then you'll start to see alto uh, stratus cloud and alto cumulus cloud. And then eventually down near the surface, when the warm front comes through, you'll have stratus cloud and a bit of rain. So farmers back in the old days before us weather forecasters tried to tell them what was going on, they were able to know that a warm front was coming simply by monitoring the sky and the clouds. And there's still a lot of truth to that even right. today. Now, I'm not going to get into the conversation about chemtrails, but there's something called a contrail cloud. Is that anything to do with planes flying or what is that? Yes. So a contrail is, is simply the uh, moisture. Uh, so obviously, as a plane flies across the sky, it's emitting um, water vapor out the back of it. Um, and it's quite hot as well as it's the exhaust from an aircraft. Right. So as it encounters the uh, very cold air in the upper atmosphere, uh, if there's enough moisture uh, up there, you can get um, a line of, um, uh, of basically cirrus cloud, a line of ice crystals that immediately form behind a, a plane and those are those are called a uh, contrast okay but it has to be a specific t temperature presumably it doesn't happen every yeah. to every plane does it uh, no it doesn't and uh, it has to be uh, the, the the right amount of humidity uh, and, and moisture in the atmosphere basically and and they can be forecast by computer models as well so right. um, you know that's one of the things that the military would do if they're flying reconnaissance missions and that sort of thing you're not going to fly over an area where you know that there's going to be a contrail um, uh, forming to, to let your your potential enemy know that you're that you're there so, right okay uh, yeah and so, I've got another yep. question here for you what are noctilucent clouds? <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite clouds. Yeah. Um, so noctilucent clouds are actually one of the few clouds that form outside of the lowest level of the Earth's atmosphere. So the lowest level of the atmosphere is known as the troposphere. Mm. And immediately above that, we call it the stratosphere. Yes, and in the stratosphere, I've heard of that. Yep. And so in the stratosphere, um, you can get these clouds that form and that are only visible um, around this time of year, actually, on okay. the northern horizon. Um, and they're made up generally of uh, microscopic uh, dust particles that form from um, from meteorites that burn up in the Earth's atmosphere and increasingly exhaust from rockets that really? are being launched. Because they're very beautiful. I mean, they sort of create they what are. looks like a kind of almost like a, a ceiling to the Earth. Yes. Yeah, they do. And if you haven't seen these before, it is worth Googling them, noctilucent cloud. Yeah. Um, uh, because they they form all kinds of intricate uh, detail in them. They they kind of look a little bit like a cirrus cloud, but with a lot more detail. Yeah, them. there's a lot more going on. And finally, yeah. lenticular clouds. I seem to remember um, somebody posted a picture of one of these um, a couple of years ago, and I'd never seen one before. And they're really quite um, spectacular. They look almost like flying saucers, don't they? They do. And so they're formed um, around mountain ranges generally or downwind from mountain right. ranges. So what happens is if you've got a mountain sitting um, like my hand is here and you push the air up over the top of it, that air that's rising um, can condense uh, and form a cloud. And if you continue to have air that's just rising up over the same mountain range with the same amount of moisture, you can get these smooth cap looking clouds um, that, that form over mountain ranges and they can sit in the same place for a really long time. So if you do a time lapse of a lenticular cloud, it looks like they're not moving right. uh, because it's just a constant cloud forming in the same location. So okay. it's really pretty 
really as you say they're quite smooth looking clouds and when you have those i mean i remember when i in new york you used to get in sort of those very clear blue sky type days where you would have no cloud in the sky at all what does that mean does that mean it's just very dry yeah, that's generally um, due to um, a large area of, of high pressure, for example. Um, and so high pressure means that um, in the atmosphere, the air is just gently sinking. And as the air gently sinks through the atmosphere, it slightly warms up by compression and dries out. And so you've got very little moisture mm. content uh, under an, air, an area of high pressure. So that's when you get the really blue skies and uh, and that sort of thing. Wow. Well, fascinating stuff. Uh, brilliant for, to hear from you, Chris. Thanks very much indeed. Chris Bell, Chief Commercial Officer at WeatherQuest Limited, uh, an lecturer in meteorology at the University of East Anglia. We now know an awful lot more than we thought we needed to know about clouds and all the different types of clouds. Um, fascinating, because there's nothing more fascinating, really, than what goes on around us. We just take it for granted. We just don't think about it very often. But if you look up, how often do you look up and think, I wonder where those clouds have gone, the ones that disappeared? Well, now you know. They've gone east. That's where they've gone. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.